It's okay. Everything's okay. Welcome home, family. We're so glad everyone's here to worship with us. Uh, you know, I forgot to do this the first time it was on, but uh, was it in that capacity? <clears throat> so there we go. Hope everyone's having a great morning. Uh, we are in the middle of our series going through the book of Exodus. And we are going to be in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there and prepare as we get there. But when we get there, don't worry. It will also be on the screen behind us as we read through that chapter. But before we dig into the Word of God, let's go to Him in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day. A day we can worship you, a day when we can gather as your people, a day when we can open up your word and see you, and see how you love us, see how you move through history, see how you have saved people again and again, and how truly you do save us. Lord, I just pray for this time as we read this story and this account, as we see what it means not only back then, but to us, that we can be moved to be yours, to follow you, to submit to your lordship, to know you are God, how that makes all the difference. Lord, we love you and seek you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we understand this world? Or how, how do we understand the cosmos, the whole of creation? What makes it tick? Kind of how does it work? And measure, that's it. That's the end-all, be-all of creation. That kind of makes sense during our times because in our, in our society nowadays, we uphold science as kind of the determiner was true or not. And so science is based off empirical evidence, what we can measure, what we can see, what we can observe. And so it's very tempting as we follow along with our society to think that all that exists can be seen and there's nothing now that does not exist, that if we can't see it, if we can't measure it, we can't observe it. We also know that's not true because there's so many things in our own lives, our emotions and, and the reality of things like love that can't be measured, can't be seen, can't be observed, but we know they're true. And then we come to the Bible and we read it, and if we believe in the God of the Bible, if we believe in who Jesus is, and we open up the Word of God and we start reading through it, there's an uncompromised supernaturalism behind the Word of God, meaning that Christians... Believers in the Word of God cannot help but know there's these realities, these spiritual realities that are behind what can be seen. That the Bible speaks unapologetically that there is a God who reigns in heaven and on earth. There's a God that reigns, but there's also these spiritual realities that there are things such as angels and there's things such as demons and there is this guy, this person, Satan, who is opposed to God. That there are things we have to believe, that we, we must trust and we must affirm what the Bible says, that there's more to reality than meets the eye. In fact, when we start reading the Bible and we start reading the ministry or interacting with the ministry of Jesus, it doesn't make sense unless we believe there's something beyond what we can see. When we read chapter 7 of Exodus, it doesn't make sense unless we actually believe there's spiritual realities behind what we're reading and what's going on in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 7. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind us. 
So this back up and set up where we go from here is as we've been going through Exodus, we've, we've read about how Moses was called by God. He encountered God out in the wilderness and he's now back in, in Egypt and he spoke to the, the people of Israel and he, they are encouraged and they are excited about what God is doing and then they spoke to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, eh, not so fast. And so that discouraged the people of Israel because Pharaoh uh, kind of... Um, um, heaped more kind of work upon the people of Israel. And so they're in this place. And now God has commanded Moses and Aaron, his brother, to once again to go back to Pharaoh and to demand again that he let the Israelite people go to worship out in the wilderness. I can't speak today. It's okay. I'll get through it. Story in verse 7. God has already said, I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to do it through signs and wonders. And this is where we start seeing that happen. So chapter 7 of Exodus says this, And the Lord says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. When, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that, the, that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and I shall turn it into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will, will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their, and their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there, will be blood, there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and all the sight in all the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. We see this account in Exodus chapter 7, maybe an account that we're probably mostly familiar with, at least 
an overview look because this is the first of what's called the ten plagues that God visits upon Egypt to let his people go. But what are we supposed to take from this account in Exodus chapter 7? How are we supposed to understand what's going on here? And I'll just offer this as a summation. God's lordship is the foundation of salvation. That when we look at what is going on here, we're seeing that God is actually having a conflict with Pharaoh and having a conflict with Egypt, saying, who is in charge here? Who is actually Lord over the world? And God is saying, I am. And actually, when we think about how God saves, how, he got, how God saves the Israelite people out of Egypt, how God saves us through Jesus Christ, the foundation of that, the understanding of that has to come to the fact that he has the power to do so, that he has the, the, the right to do so, that he is in a position to be Lord, that he controls all, that he is sovereign of the universe and can actually do what he has promised to do. And so the foundation of us understanding how we're saved by God starts with understanding that God is Lord, that he is master, that he is the almighty, that what he says he's going to do, he does it because he has a vision of salvation. We see that in Exodus chapter 7 because we see how almost it starts off with this battle between God and Pharaoh. Who is going to be master? Who is going to be top dog, if you will? And it starts off when Moses and Aaron walk back into Pharaoh's court or wherever they meet with him, and they're going to deliver again the message of God. And, and Moses says, how could we possibly do this? And, Moses, and God says to Moses, I will make you like God to Pharaoh. Such an interesting phrase. And when we read that, it might struck out, like, stick out to you. Like, what does it mean that God is going to make Moses like God to Pharaoh? What it's saying is, is, is it saying that Moses is somehow going to become God? He's going to become divine? That's not what it's saying, but it's what it's saying is that God is saying, hey, I'm going to make you my mouthpiece. I'm going to make you my representer. I'm going to make you who is going to bring the word of God to Pharaoh, and Aaron is going to be your prophet. So you're going to represent God, and Aaron is going to speak on your behalf, but I'm going to make you God before Pharaoh so that Pharaoh has to come to a decision. He has to be confronted with this truth. Is Pharaoh God? Is Pharaoh Lord? Or is God God? And so God is saying, I'm going to give you to my divine authority and you're going to walk in there and you're going to represent me. Just do this. For I have uncircumcised lips, he says. This weird phrase that is only used by Moses that most people take meaning he maybe had a speech impediment or maybe he couldn't talk well or maybe he's talking about his moral state, that he's just not worthy to do this for God. And what is God's answer? Don't worry about that, for I will take care of it. For it's not about you, Moses. It's not about how well you can speak. It's not how well you are or how good you are. It's about me. That I'm going to use you, imperfect though you are, to show Pharaoh who is God. So he answers uh, Moses' kind of qualms and sends Moses back to confront Pharaoh. This is a, conf uh, a confrontation between God and Pharaoh. For remember, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, and, and people might differ on what the Pharaohs kind of represented. Some people say the Egyptians thought Pharaoh was divine himself, like a son of the god, or, or, or um, kind of had a deity in himself. But others might argue that Pharaoh just represented the gods, and he was like the conduit uh, for the people to the gods. Whatever case it might be, here comes this shepherd into Pharaoh's court saying, now he is representing God. He knows the true God. And it confronts Pharaoh with this, this idea, who is God? Who is Lord? 
Is Pharaoh Lord? Is Pharaoh master? Or is this God that Moses represents master? And so this, who is the master that you have to recognize? And Pharaoh has this confrontation because he is his own master. He is God to the Egyptians, and so he fights against this. And it, but God sends Moses to put, Moses to put Pharaoh in his place. That Pharaoh has to recognize that he is not God or a conduit to these gods, but he has to recognize there is a God over him that Pharaoh recognizes. It's interesting, but Moses being a man and representing God, going to speak to the powers that be, really points to who Jesus is. That Moses was a man, fallible, imperfect man, and yet he represents God before the people, and it points to the reality of Jesus, who is fully man and fully divine, coming to represent God perfectly before the people. And one of the big things about Jesus to recognize who Jesus is, is you have to recognize who he claimed to be. That Jesus claimed to be God, that Jesus claimed to be the Almighty in the flesh, that Jesus actually claimed equality with the Father who's in heaven, and so that you have to recognize Jesus' lordship to even understand who he is. And the same thing with Moses. When he comes before Pharaoh, you have to recognize who God is and his lordship to understand who he is. But it's interesting in our day and age, grace and his forgiveness, and the fact that he understands us, they want to grab hold of that without recognizing first and foremost who he is, which is Lord of lords and the Lord of the universe, the maker of all that is, that everything was made for him and through him and to him. You have to understand who he is before you actually even understand uh, how you can relate to him. But again and again, people want to grab hold of those good things of Jesus without understanding who he is. They want that buddy Christ that's just kind of like, you're okay, but without understanding who Jesus was. You know, there's a national campaign going on right now that may have some good products coming from it that, that, that kind of hold up Jesus as he gets you. He understands you. That's true. He totally does. But no one is going to be confronted with the truth of who is in charge of this world with that message. For that you don't even understand who this Jesus is that gets you. What, who, do, who cares if Jesus gets you if you don't first understand the God of the cosmos who rules all with a sovereign hand, who knows all, that knows you intimately. This God loved you so much, loved his people so much that he sent his son who was him down in the flesh to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to intercede with us. If you don't, you have to understand first and foremost that God, that Jesus is Lord, just like Pharaoh was confronted, just like anyone who's confronted with God and Jesus and how it represents the truth of who God is, has to be confronted with this, that God is God and they are not. And that is what's happening when, Pharaoh, when, when Moses walks into Pharaoh and says, hey, this is Yahweh, and let his people go worship him. But when we talk about God's lordship, about how he rules on, that he's sovereign Lord, we immediately might have this little question that pops into our mind. And we have this question that comes in our mind when we read like verses um, uh, 3, when it says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is God saying this. He's saying, hey, I'm going to harden 
Pharaoh's heart. Why? So that my signs can be magnified, that people will have no question it's me doing it. And so when we talk about God's lordship, we immediately come to one of those big questions that Christians and all people kind of wrestle with is, how can God be sovereign, meaning he's in control, and how can we as humans be held responsible for what's happening and what we do? How do those things work together? How can the Bible say again and again, God hardens for a heart, like in verse 3, but then when you get down, but then when you go to verse, uh, in chapters uh, 8, it says again that, uh, uh, well, it says that uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then when you get back to chapter 9, it talks about how the Lord hardens his heart. And so you got to go, how does that work together? What does it mean when we see again and again through these signs and wonders of God, how can it say God hardens Pharaoh's heart? And how can it say that Pharaoh hardens his own heart? Are these two different things? Do these intersect at all? And I always offer you the understanding that God's sovereignty, him being in control, goes right alongside with the fact that humanity is held responsible for their actions. These things are compatible. I believe in what you might call biblical compatibilism. That's a word you can go share at the water cooler. Compatibilism. It's this idea that God's sovereignty, him being in charge, is actually in line with us being responsible. They're compatible. That God's sovereignty is so big, is so grand, that we can't understand it. And so we make our own choices. We do what we want. We do what our nature calls us to do. And that's all true. But God is over it all. That when you actually start thinking about humans' choices and what happens, there could be called like two causes for everything. God's cause, he caused this stuff to happen, but the more immediate cause is you, you decide to do it. Then God is so grand and so good and so great, he can win because he is God, again, and we are not. And so when you read these things, when we read these, and we shouldn't question, we just, the Bible holds these true truths out. And the Bible even doesn't think there's tension. It says, God is in charge, what he decrees happens, and you are held responsible, and you are responsible for your actions. And the Bible holds these truths out, and how we understand it is that God is so bigger than us that he can do this. That God is so bigger than us, he can actually take our own free actions and choices and weave them into his plan without even missing a beat. Because that is who God is. He's God, and we're not. But we're tempted to try to domesticate God. He's a scary God. He's so big, he's so grand. We can't confront him. We don't not worthy to be part of his plan, but he yet he includes us. And so we want to domesticate him. We want to bring him down or maybe lift up humanity. And so that's why people wrestle with this because they want to bring him down and say, maybe he's not in charge. Well, if you do that, you're left with an inept, incompetent God, not worthy of worship. Or people say, hey, maybe we should lift up humanity that we can somehow determine our own fate and we're the masters of our own domain. But that's not what the Bible says and we don't know that from our own experience. We're not that great. So again, we hold to what the Bible says is that God is in charge. But we want to bring him down. It says, no, we shouldn't do that. I think that's actually just natural for all humanity. I have a 10-year-old son, and he loves to climb on stuff higher than me and then declare he's taller than his dad. It's absurd. You're like, you're 10 years old, you should know better. You're not taller than me, you're standing on a footstool. But that's what we do with God all the time, is that we want to set ourselves up and we say, ha-ha, look at us. 
We're somehow greater than God. And God's like, that's absurd. <laughs> but yet, we do that. And that's, we have to wrestle with that. But the Bible makes it very, very clear. God is in control. We are held responsible. And we walk in the light of those two truths. That's more than a side than anything. But it recognizes when we talk about God's lordship, we don't, we shouldn't shrink back from declaring the, the great biblical truth. God is Lord. God is sovereign. God is in charge, and that's a good thing. It inspires us and points us to worship Him. But even the fact that God is in charge, we see this conflict happen because there's this conflict with humanity opposed to God and these spiritual forces that are opposed to God's reign as well. Seven, the spiritual conflict is set up it's God and his people. God sending Moses and Aaron to represent him against Pharaoh representing the forces of the Egyptian pantheon which are backed by demonic powers opposed to God. Sometimes we can hear that and we're so modern that we're kind of almost questioning that and we go, how could that be? That seems so, so mystically. That seems so like something that you'd read in a fantasy novel. But it's the truth of reality that there are spiritual forces actually opposed to who God is. And they're opposed that people would, would, would actually acknowledge truthfully his reign. And so they're fighting against it. And that's where we get this spiritual conflict going on. And I love how one commentator, James Boyce, said this. He says, there's a battle pitted, a battle pitted Yahweh, the true God, who moves Moses and Israel against all the false gods of the Egyptian pantheon, backed by a host of fallen angels who had turned from God as part of Lucifer's original rebellion. That's what's going on here. There's this cosmic battle happening that we see the surface of as Moses confronts Pharaoh, and we see these signs and wonders happen. Why? Because it's pointing to a spiritual reality that is behind this conflict, behind Pharaoh's conflict with the people of God. If you doubt that, just read again and again in the Bible. It talks about there's a reality of this conflict. Paul's story is against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That there is a spiritual battle going on, and that is the conflict. Why? Because these things, these, these demonic forces, these ways of the world that don't want to acknowledge God as Lord, what are they doing? They're putting themselves up against God. They're saying, he is not God. You can look for your own God, or you can look towards us. We would love that, and we can be your God. And they don't want people to look towards the rightful God of the universe and say, he is Lord of my life. He determines where I go. He can get to guide me. He gets to direct me. He gets to demand my allegiance, and that is who who the Lord is. But there's, a, there's opposition, and we see that again and again, to not look towards there, but to look towards who God is. And the reality is there's not this, this ocean of gray that we want to live in between walking with God and people who are serving the enemy. <laughs> You're either serving God, knowing him as he's revealed in the Bible, or you're following something else that's going to pull you astray and point your eyes towards something else. That anything we want to, as we read in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 6, that money has the power to do that, points our eyes somewhere else. It commands our allegiance. Then when we look around, things in this life command our allegiance and they pull us away. We answered that question, who is Lord of life, determines everything else. 
If you're looking towards God for guidance and direction, and you're knowing Him and you're submitting to His Word, you're acknowledging his, Him as Lord of your life, and you follow Him. And so you see this, this, this conflict still happening even in our lives. It's not just these supernatural, big-on-the-screen signs that happened during Moses' day, but it's every day as a Christian, a Christ follower who knows Jesus Christ, decides, determines, I'm going to live for Christ, they are going to expect conflict as people try to lead them astray or distract them from following him and declaring him Lord of their life. It happens again and again. We need to be on guard. We need to be aware that our struggle is not against this world and these people around us, but it's against these things that want to lead us away from who God is. And in the story of Pharaoh and Moses, God says, I'm going to use signs and wonders to show them I am God and in charge. Which happens in Jesus' ministry as well as he uses signs and wonders to prove to him he is who he says he is. And we follow God as he is revealed in the scripture and know we're called to live for him in, in the midst of the spiritual conflict, knowing he and we trust in him. So the conflict breaks out between Moses, representing God, and Pharaoh. And there's a sign that happens, the first sign, the first kind of wonder, is Pharaoh says, hey, I'm going to demand a miracle for you, from you. Show me, prove to me that you actually are coming with power. Prove to me that this God you speak of has power. And so he, Aaron takes his staff and he throws it down, he casts it down, and that staff becomes a serpent. And Moses and magicians, the, through their cigars, they do the same, but Aaron's staff swallows up all the, snark, all the snakes. And you say, what is happening here? And really what's happening here is that God is showing that he has power and his lordship over Pharaoh. For Pharaoh, Pharaoh uh, uh, one of the signs of Pharaoh's power was the serpent, was the snake. If you guys remember from grade school, when you look at the King Tut's uh, sarcophagus, you see on his headdress what's coming out of it. It's a cobra, right? Because that is a sign of the Pharaoh's power. The snake is a sign of Pharaoh's power because the Pharaohs actually gave their allegiance to this Egyptian goddess, the snake goddess, Wedjet, and they actually pled their allegiance to it because they thought Wedjet had power over the land and could protect it. And so the Pharaohs pled their, pledged their allegiance to this snake goddess for, for power and for the ability to protect the land. But what Pharaoh was doing when he did demonic forces opposed to God. And this is the conflict that's happening. And so now Aaron takes the symbol of Pharaoh's power and he casts it on the ground and makes it crawl in the dust. It's this great symbol of how God rules over even this stupid snake goddess, Wedget. How dare you believe this? It now crawls in the dust. One commentator pointed to the fact that this would be kind of like if you walked into the Oval Office confronting the president and you wrung a bald eel's neck. Like, hey, the symbol of your power is dead. And that's what Moses and Aaron are doing. Hey, the symbol of your power is on the ground, crawling in the dust. God is Lord over you. But Pharaoh fights back. He calls his magicians. He calls his sorcerers. And what do they do? They go, oh, we can do this. And they do the same thing. They make their own staff snakes. But Aaron's snake swallows them up. If there ever was a clearer sign that no matter how they did that, through their power, which we'll talk about in a little bit, how they did that, God is more powerful. 
his serpent that he made out of the staff swallowed all of them up. Their power could not even come close to who God is. So it's showing again and again how this is a, this is a conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, yes, but ultimately it's a conflict. God's lordship reigns supreme. And guess what? Whenever the word is preached, whenever the gospel is declared, that same conflict happens. For that same conflict of who is going to be lord of this life, who's going to be lord of, the, of, of whoever you're talking to, that same conflict is raging. Who is more powerful? Who has the right? Who are we going to follow? That conflict is, right, is, 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 is raging in people's minds and their souls, and God's lordship reigns supreme. And so we can't convince someone to believe in God. We can't, con- we can't make someone become a Christ follower, but we do declare the word and we trust that the, the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. That when we declare God is at work and he is greater than whatever they're worshiping, wherever they're looking towards, that he can, that he can actually come in and he bring someone to worship him as they see who he is and recognize his lordship. And so that same conflict is raging in, in our lives as we share the gospel. And the same conflict actually is probably raging in a lot of our lives as we know who Christ is and we know who we who we should worship, and who we should follow. But there's all these things that so easily distract. But God's lordship swallows them all. As you follow Christ, God's lordship swallows the lord of self that we all love. We seek to put ourselves up and, and put others down. That God's lordship swallows up all these other things we might look towards, whether it be money or power, prestige or position or relationships, whatever they might be, God's lordship swallows them all because he is supreme. He is the most powerful for he is the only true God and we follow him. God's lordship is the foundation of salvation. But he's not just done because Moses, there's another sign going on here. It's not just God over Pharaoh, but it's now God over the gods of the Nile. For again, we see this, this kind of this sense of worship going on here uh, of, of Pharaoh going out to the Nile. And that's where Moses and Aaron are directed to go out and confront him next. Now, the text doesn't say why uh, Pharaoh went out to the Nile, but it's really easy to, to, when you understand the Egyptian culture, to think maybe he actually went out to pay homage to the Nile, to gods or goddesses of the Nile. Uh, Philip Reich in a commentator says this, it's easy to imagine Pharaoh blessing the waters in the name of Happy, the, the god of the flood, or giving thanks every morning to Kunum, the, god, the guardian of the Nile. Perhaps he used the words of the ancient Egyptian hymn, Hell to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. And so you see this, this spiritual conflict, and Aaron confront him, and God gives him another sign. Stretch out your staff, strike the water, and this sign this of Nile, which was the lifeblood of Egypt, would now become blood, and all the life that would come out of the Nile the fish would now die and, and showing, again, God's lordship over all these things that people were worshiping in Egypt, that God was over them all. 
Actually, when we look at these, this, this first plague and then we look at the other nine to follow, again and again, it's making it very clear that this is a spiritual battle of God actually setting himself up against the whole Egyptian pantheon saying, I am more powerful, I am the ruler, these things have no power outside of myself. He's making that very clear again and again. Actually, when we look at that view, we see that, how the first couple plagues that are going are demonstrating God's power over the Nile, and then he's going to demonstrate his power over the earth, and he's going to demonstrate his power over the heavens. All these things that they put these goddesses and goddesses in, and God comes in and says, no, I am God. These other things are not God. They have no power besides what I might grant them. He is truly God. We see this when, when, when God uses it against the Nile, he's directing their eyes back to him. For the Egyptians looked to gods and goddesses that actually gave life came from the Nile because that's what they, they, they knew. That it's the Nile that would flood and would provide fertile cropland. It's the Nile that gave fish that they ate. It's the Nile that seemed to be the wellspring of life. And so God's coming against that and saying, no, in that is only death if you worship it. You follow that, you'll be like the stinking fish in the bloody Nile. That's what happens when you follow things opposed to me. And we see this again and again through Scripture, and we know that God is the one who gives life. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and through whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom all things and through whom we exist. God is the God of life. Acts 17.25 says, talking about God, He Himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. In John 14.6, Jesus Himself talking about who He is. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from Me. Again and again, the Bible declares this is who God is and we look towards Him because He is the giver of life and these other things are not. They hold no power in them. That we have to understand God's lordship, that he is the one who gives life, that God's lordship is the foundation of salvation. That's the truth. But, if you're like me when you read this, do what Moses and Aaron did. Like, where does that, how does that work? That when he, when, how, how can they throw down a staff and it becomes a serpent? How can they collect some water and it turn into blood too? How do they do this? Well, it's, it's tempting, I think, nowadays to say, well, there's got to be a naturalistic explanation, right? Maybe they're just like magicians nowadays, clever illusionists. They do a little sleight of hand. They have the snake up their sleeve. They throw it down. Something like that, right? It's tempting to think that. Or maybe, maybe when, in regards to the snake, maybe there's the snake charmers, right? Now, we know what snake charmers are. They kind of lure, lure, lure the snake into kind of like a comatose state through music or whatever, or, or the motion. Maybe they're just doing that. So it's really tempted, I think, to think of a natural explanation of why, how these people can do it. Why? Because I think it's really easy for us to acknowledge the supernatural when it involves God, but it gets really scary when to acknowledge the supernatural when it involves the forces opposed to God. But I think we read it as it raves that twice it says, how do they do this? Through their secret arts. When the Bible says secret arts, it's talking about demonic spells and influence, incantations, where they are tapping into something. It's not God, but they're tapping into some power opposed to God. And that's this very, I didn't, that we just sang Mighty Fortress and God. I was looking at those lyrics, and it's like, hey, yeah, the world's filled with devils, but we don't tremble for them. 
because we have a mighty fortress who is powerful, more powerful. They, they don't have the power. And the same thing happens here. We look at what they do. They can only imitate what God is doing. That Satan is a great knockoff artist, right? He's like, you went to the, to the park in New York City and you bought this, this bag that you thought might be a really expensive bag, but then you start looking at it and you're like, wow, this stitching's not good. And that symbol, they spelled it wrong. Something like that. He's a great knockoff artist, right? He has the appearance of having power, but there is no power. For even look at that. When they throw down the snake, their staffs, and they make snakes, and they're like, ha, we made it. Aaron's snake swallowed our snakes. We don't get our staffs back. That is a knockoff power. It's a knockoff artist. He has no power outside of who God is. That God is greater. That we shouldn't be fearful or trembling because of these powers that exist because we know the true power who is God and he's greater and more powerful than they could ever dream that the end is not in doubt that the victory is assured we know who is God and even when you think about how they took water and they turned it into blood what victory is that because you have to first ask where did they find that water and why did you waste it by turning it into blood that's the side. Do is take some clean water and duplicate it, making the plague worse. That shows that all these powers arrayed against God are self-defeating. That they cannot do anything. That they try to use power against God and they defeat themselves. Which is really interesting when you start thinking about how we are saved by recognizing God's lordship. How all these things arrayed against God try to defeat God, and yet they defeat themselves. The greatest example, I believe, is the cross. As, God, as, as, as Satan himself moves in Judas to portray Jesus, as these powers arrayed against God and, and who he is and who Jesus is move against the Son of God to put an end to it. And through the power of the Roman Empire, they thought they did. As they nailed this guy to the cross, they said, that is it. And in response to Gat, God said, no, it is finished. Through their power, what they thought they were doing became self-defeating as God showed who truly was saving us through that. And so when we look at that as self-defeating, but it raises that question when we look who Jesus is and how he saves us, and we look who God is and how he saves his people, who is the Lord of our life? That is what it is. It's an acknowledgement. We're not giving anything that they don't already have. They are Lord. They are sovereign. They are king of all there is. And so when we acknowledge who they are, we're acknowledging it. We're actually putting ourselves in the rightful place to what we're created to be. They are God. Jesus is God. God is God. And I am not. As we acknowledge that, which brings me back to how we started the service, in Ephesians chapter 2, when it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God, who has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus is Lord. God's salvation is the foundation of salvation. If no, I would encourage you to actually look again to who Jesus is and then look to what you're following and see how they stack up against God. Do they have what God has? Are they, do they have any power in themselves? Look to them, actually evaluate and see the glories of who God is and see the power of who Jesus is and his love poured out for you and really examine that. Look to Christ. But if I ask if you believe that, and you say yes, then I would have to lovingly encourage us all, myself included, live like it then. That Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? He gets to guide and direct my life. He gets to tell me how I live. He gets to tell me how I love people, how I act. He gets to determine where I go. He is Lord of my life. <coughs> and I follow Him. If we believe this, we know the truth. He is Lord and he calls us to be his. God's lordship is the foundation of salvation. Join me in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are, for how you reveal yourself through this word, how you reveal yourself through the truth of uh, how Moses spoke to Pharaoh, the truth of how we have seen Jesus through your word and I pray for everyone here who knows and calls upon your name that they can be convicts, convinced and convicted to follow you as they should, as our Lord. If there's anyone here who does not know you, who does not call upon you as Lord, I just pray that they can look again to you. Examine who you are. See the glories and beauty of Jesus and follow. Lord, we love you and seek you and pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.